start now like we define time by these weeks and these days so it's going to be you know you have two bad days in a row oh no it's going to be a bad week but truthfully this time is just this illusion so we can stop at any moment whatever pattern that we're creating that we don't like and we can go ahead and take a step in you know a better direction All right, a little time-stretched opening theme music to go along with the words of this episode's guest, uh, Lauren Maples. I'll tell you a little bit about Lauren in a minute, but welcome to Farm On, the podcast. I'm Joe Phillips, where we talk with agriculturists, artists, and activists on the front lines of the food movement. Find Farm On on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. You can contact me on Twitter at FarmOnDharma, that's FarmOnDharma, or send me an old school email to dharmaonthefarm at gmail.com. So, um, a little bit about our guest, Lauren Maples. She's the co-founder and executive director of PEAS, which stands for Partners for Education, Agriculture, and Sustainability. It's a nonprofit operating in Austin, Texas. Woo, love Austin, yeah. Bees provides educators to local schools and leads outdoor lessons and works with teachers to help them better utilize the outdoor spaces on their campuses and with their own classes. Lauren has been awarded two separate Fulbright grants that have allowed her to travel to New Zealand and all over the U.S. researching best practices in outdoor education. Um, I first met Lauren at a conference organized by Slow Food USA where she asked if I had ever read Wendell Berry. And I was like, yeah, of course I have. Everybody has. And actually, I hadn't. So it was a big revelation for me. And when I finally did sit down and read some of his work, I was like, where have I been for the last 30 or 40 years? Because everything that I felt in my heart and I felt in my brain... Um, He had already written about it and talked about it. If you don't know, Wendell Berry is an American novelist, poet, environmental activist, cultural critic, and farmer in Kentucky. Um, He's written a ton of books, uh, many of them novels, short stories, poems, and essays, like the one I'm going to read you an excerpt from right now. All right, this is an essay from 1989 by Wendell Berry. And the essay is titled, Nature as Measure. And I'm going to read you one short little paragraph. For a long time now, we have understood ourselves as traveling towards some sort of industrial paradise, some new Eden conceived and constructed entirely by human ingenuity. And we have thought of ourselves free to use and abuse nature in any way that we might further this enterprise. Now we face overwhelming evidence that we are not smart enough to recover Eden by assault and that nature does not tolerate or excuse our abuses. If, in spite of the evidence against us, we are finding it hard to relinquish our old ambition, we are also seeing more clearly every day how that ambition has reduced and enslaved us. We see how everything, the whole world, is belittled by the idea that all creation is moving or ought to move toward an end that somebody, some human body, has thought up. To be free of that end and that ambition would be a delightful and precious thing. Once free of it, we might again go about our work and our lives with a seriousness and pleasure 
denied to us when we merely submit to a fate already determined by gigantic politics, economics, and technology. So, like I said, I hadn't read any Wendell Berry, but I knew he was a big deal in the agrarian literary world. And I remember seeing a photo in the news of Wendell Berry receiving the National Humanities Medal from President Obama. And that image of Obama placing this medal around his neck kind of sticks with me. I, I really can't imagine in our current quagmire of a political situation that our number 45 would take any time to sincerely honor someone, uh, an artist, intellectual, and man of the earth, such as Wendell Berry. So we need him now more than ever, and in this episode of Farm On, Lauren and I uh, talk about life, and we talk about life through the lens of Wendell Berry, and we do that by reading some Wendell Berry quotes. So here's Lauren Maples, and I hope you enjoy it. Yeah, at the bare minimum, I mean, every most every campus in our district has some field. I mean, we do have a couple that are in urban, like, blocks, but... They, they have managed to cultivate green spaces within those areas, but we, the vast majority have some kind of field. So, I mean, you can do basic um, lessons on plant blindness and go and look in a field and, and just count the different types of grass out there. And it's very, that type of thing is very eye-opening to kids. Wait, plant blindness? Mm-hmm. What was that? Plant blindness. When you... you Plants that can't see. <laughs> no, we're... Humans that can't see plants. Um, oh, that kind of plant. Um, yeah, you look at a, a you know field and you're like, oh, it's grass, or oh, it's green, uh, yeah. and then yeah, not yeah. taking the time to appreciate that there are, are probably you know hundreds of species of plants in, in that the picture. The biodiversity. I mean, mm-hmm. I've been doing this for a few years, and I still like uh, frequently have plant blindness. Mm-hmm. You know, and I I'm really trying to learn how to identify things or at least just notice the diversity mm-hmm. you know because you can quickly tell if you just see a monoculture grass or whatever you can quickly tell like that's not that healthy there's not a whole lot going on there there yeah. can't be possibly enough um, microbial and insect species to make this like a thriving habitat you know yeah and then without a lot of chemical inputs it's hard to keep it up alive if the right. if one part of it goes then the whole you know yeah. patch will die yeah have you ever been on the debate the like grass versus no grass debate with people who really just revere lawns and had that kind of like moment where you're like we're not even speaking the same language like i mean i know like everybody has a lawn to some degree but if you get into this work long enough you realize like the whole grass lawn culture of our whole society is just like destroying our like our water system. I mean, yeah. we don't we're not going to have enough water to sustain this, so what are we going to do about it, you know? Yeah, I can't I wish I had the the statistic, but there's like a staggering amount of water that just goes to watering golf courses. Just and not including uh-huh. all these, you know, residential houses, but like it could like yeah. it could probably provide water for a whole country. <laughs> so. I, I just had a conversation with my dad on the phone. He's a big golfer, and um, you know I've always tried to get into it. I could never catch on to golfing. I don't know. It just makes me like 
like I try not to be an angry person, but when I play golf, like this like <laughs> primal anger just wells up. But at any rate, it's that my story is not about that. But um, he was talking about the grass in their uh, golf course in in Oklahoma, and it has to be watered so often that they decided to they're gonna install these giant fans, these electric fans on some of the greens to cool the greens. So not only do they have to input tons of water and tons of fertilizer, but now have they have air conditioning. Like, they have <laughs> air conditioning for the grass. And so my question was, well, Dad, is, is this grass like what? Why does this grass have such a hard time staying alive? He's like, well, this grass, this particular type of grass isn't designed to be in hot, drought-stricken areas like northwestern Oklahoma, where yeah. <laughs> it is, and I'm sure in, in Austin too. It's like, well, did some? Is there some disconnect happening? Yeah. Is there another species of grass, or is just a, or could you just play golf on? Uh, Dirt? I don't know. <laughs> Dirt? Yeah, like one big sand trap. But I'm not a golfer, so I don't know. Yeah, you know, I, I'm just... sure they wouldn't like the plan, but it, it sounds reasonable <laughs> to me. <laughs> okay, well, obviously we're not going to solve the golfing no. crisis right now. But um, So that's cool. So you, you're, you're, you're wrapping up the Fulbright thing, and you're doing – you're making all sorts of new proposals for your nonprofit piece mm-hmm. to expand your programming there. Yes. Um, so I think last time I talked to you, you were like kind of uh, in a precarious spot with that or, or you were about to propose something. You had, you had uh, uh, contributors falling through at the last minute and whatnot. Yeah, yeah, it's getting going. I mean, there's there's a lot of support, but like... Like with anything that involves a nonprofit, nobody wants to like say, "Well, we'll provide the funding for it." So um, everybody, so the idea would be recreating something similar to what's going on at the edible schoolyard out in California, but um, because food access and um, nutrition education, access to um, to varying programs in our district is a big issue. Um, my idea is to take it instead of um, providing, unfortunately, we would not be able to provide the depth to the entire you know, district, the depth of programming, but to provide a seed to table experience for, we could um, have a, it would be the teaching farm and like kitchen classroom that mm-hmm. would provide field trips to the district, so uh, so they could bring the kids out to this um, this setup. Yes, this, uh, exactly. Outdoor kitchen type experience. Yeah, so um, the kitchen classroom would probably be indoors. We already have a community farm on the campus where I had previously been working, and um, mm-hmm. the idea would be so the infrastructure is in place for the teaching farm would be to have the district allow us to use one of the rooms um, for a kitchen classroom. So we could see two classes at a time, um, and they would take turns. One would get the farm experience, and then the kitchen experience, and then they would switch. Um, And in that, I mean, it would be probably about a four-hour field trip, like two hours in each space. so there, Let's do it yeah, half a day. and I think it could be really meaningful. We can set it up in a way and scale it, um, or I, I guess put it in a 
we can make sure that we the lessons for the pre-K students are going to connect with them on their level, but we could also mm-hmm. offer field trips to um, 12th graders and really get a little bit more in-depth into sure. our conversation about what a sustainable food system really looks like. It's awesome. Make it age-appropriate. Mm-hmm. It's all set up so they don't have to build their own their own uh, program at wherever they are. They can just come to you and it's ready to go. Yeah, and ideally, you know, it would be inspiring them to maybe to take action in some way. So um, mm-hmm. to leave them with some ideas of what they can do when they go back to school to continue, you know, mm-hmm. the learning process. and Scale it out. Mm-hmm. I mean, even if they just have an herb garden and some pots and they're, you know, bringing herbs in to add to whatever they do in their cafeteria, that's that's beautiful yeah and there's so many service learning projects that can be done they don't have to take Mm -hmm. you know um, a a huge amount of time out of whatever classes they have to teach but they Mm -hmm. are are, our district really um, is pushing they call it problem-based learning Um, I would like it to be called solutions-based learning but (laughs) Uh (laughs) problem has a negative connotation yeah but I think um, we could be the springboard to launch some really good projects for mm-hmm. campuses. It's awesome, man. You're rolling. So you have three kids. Did I get that mm-hmm. right? Four. Nope. Uh, four. Yes. You have four kids. Um, so did your, I mean, being a parent, did that kind of, I guess, spur your interest in this? Like, did you see kind of what their experience was in school and see like there was a missing a missing link with food and did that propel you or was this something that you kind of felt in your core before you became a parent? Um, no, I, well, I definitely think as a parent you, I mean, yeah, for the, the food piece that came after having children. Um, yeah, once you're feeding them, you're like, oh, this stuff's crap. Like, I mean, even just the basic baby food when they're transitioning to eating solids, you're like, where is this stuff being grown and what's in it? So, yeah, I do think that definitely um, was, you know, fed into my my belief that I want, you know, there to be healthy access to food out there for everyone. Um, and then when my oldest son was in elementary school, um, I was invited by a couple of the teachers since I gardened at home to help them sponsor the gardening club. And I was super excited about that, more for the, like, kids and nature aspect of it. Just getting the kids outside and having them take time to look closely at nature and what's growing around them. Because I really feel like if we expect our children to be stewards of the planet in the future, they really need to know and love and care for the planet. So That's the thing. I think we focus so much in, like, gardening education and stuff it has to be tied to standards and it has to have like a measurable outcome and you have to like you're providing all this data and saying uh here's why um you know working in nature helps kids with their science math reading um all the literacies but i i I really just wish that there was more emphasis placed on just having time in nature, and it doesn't have to be fully immersed nature. It can just be whatever is accessible close by. You know. Yeah. I just I think that the whole nature deficit disorder 
concept that Richard Liu mm-hmm. kind of launched. Like, I feel like that, that has a lot of traction, but I, I wish it was more practical, like you said. I wish it was more just uh, emphasized so that kids just were out doing things and it wasn't such a high-pressure situation. Like, okay, what are you getting out of this? We need to see results. Well, that's you know? the challenge. Um, but that is also one of the reasons for me it was really important to stay in, well, for, for, for me, public education. Um because they're, kids are coming to school and they've spent like, you know, six hours on a screen at home, but they haven't played in their backyard at all. So it is the challenge, and this is where it comes in, you know, for the teacher or the educators to be that buffer for the students. So you create these magical experiences. You've, you know, you know they're aligned to whatever um, standards there are, but um, as the educator or the facilitator of the activity you don't have to let on to the kids that that's going on um (laughs) teachers keep it under wraps we've been working with that they you know they loved the program last year and that was one of the things they said like um we get outside and everybody's so engrossed in what they're doing um and and then at the end of the day they go back in the classroom and realize oh that was exactly you know what we were talking about last week in science or as right, they're right, out right. there the kids start making the connections naturally like oh you know we were talking about erosion last oh, week yeah. and now we're talking about building a berm for a rain garden or something like that and yeah you just wait for the connections to pop up you know well, and you, mis- you mentioned public school, too, and I've, I've worked in a public school, and I, I work in a private school, and uh, in some ways the, the difference in socioeconomics can be really stark, but in terms of uh, kids having screen time and not being outside, it, to me it seems like it's like the great um, equalizer. <laughs> like, yeah, no. Regardless of socioeconomic status, like most kids are inside on a screen. Absolutely. Playing the same video game. Yeah. You know? No, I agree. No, when I, um, as far as, I guess, I, I feel like some of the private schools, at least here in Austin, they just have a more, um, um, a more global view on things. So a lot of them already have like outdoor programs and things that we don't see here as much in Austin. But I do agree absolutely that the kids in their home hours are are all doing basically the same thing. Well, um, it's great, man. I mean, I feel like most bigger cities have some nonprofit like yours that's do that's doing the hard work of trying to get inroads into the schools and um, but it seems like your approach and especially your research I think the research part is really what's making your program it's just it's really it's giving it a lot of heft <laughs> you know a lot of it's got a lot of fire behind it and that's awesome yeah I mean I, I feel just extremely lucky that I have had the opportunity because um being able to go out and see what other people are doing and see what similar programs look like in different communities mm-hmm. is truly inspirational. And it also helps me um, kind of break down some of those invisible barriers that I've had um, in the past of what can and can't be done. What you hear about other people are doing it. Oh, it can be done. Uh, it, sometimes it's just that. It just takes that knowing that someone else out there. Um, has made you just need to see an example Mm -hmm. you know 
show me how it's done, and then I'll have feel I'll have the confidence to do it myself. Yeah, absolutely. So hopefully, and I know that I can't. What I'm bringing back to share with teachers here can't. It's not going to have the same oomph because they're not experiencing uh-huh. it firsthand. But hopefully, at least we can help get them in touch with resources that will inspire them and excite them about what what they can do on their own campuses. Yeah, it's like my colleague who runs our student-run restaurant. She's always, she says she's a cheerleader, not a teacher. Like she's, you know, she's always in front of the kids, jumping up and down, being really, really excited about it. And that's what gets them into it, you know. Yeah. Uh, That's a lot of hard work. (laughs) (laughs) Well, hey, um, we're going to switch gears because you and I um, met at a slow food uh, gardening, school gardening conference a while back. And we, um, you, you had... Uh, dropped some serious uh, knowledge on me about Wendell Berry. And at the time, I was like, Wendell who? And then I realized what a noob I am (laughs) because I never really read his stuff. And so um, you were like, you need to read this and this and this and make sure you read his fiction and everything else that he's written. And and, um, so so our initial plan was to make a book club um, probably a two-person book club, but if anybody else wanted to join, that was okay, too, where we would uh, choose one of his pieces of literature and read it and then talk about it on the podcast. Well, I totally failed on that completely because uh, we chose one of his novels, and I got into it, and it was great, but this summer I just have a stack of nonfiction that I need to get through for the podcast and for other stuff, and so I totally dropped the ball on that. So um, this is the part where you're supposed to say, that's okay, don't worry about ah, it. Ah, well. Cool. Everybody gets busy. Yeah, yeah. No, truly. <laughs> <laughs> After my book finally came in, I also was like, oh, this is, I gotta, I gotta read some other stuff too. Yes, yes. It's not a small novel. It's a lot no, of it's dense one. too. Um, yeah. That's the thing, like yeah. he gives you a lot to think about, so... Even in his fiction, um, there's such a just deeper message, and it just takes a while to distill it. So, yeah, maybe it's not a summer reading. Maybe it's a a whole year project. (laughs) I think it might be at this point in my life anyway. Um, But uh, with that in mind, since we're doing a podcast, which is shared on social media, and that's kind of how we do things, in this world, um, we're going to um, instead go to Wendell Berry's unofficial Twitter feed, um, which is called at Wendell, uh, at Wendell Daily. Probably not run by Wendell Berry himself since, um, you know, he's a kind of guy who's farming in Kentucky using horses mostly. So I don't he's think he's a, like... Tweeting all day long? <laughs> probably not. I mean, it'd be co- it, it's possible that he's, you know pulling his iPhone out of his wool pants while he's, you know, <laughs> leading the horses and tweeting these. But I don't know. It seems like it might be unofficial. That seems far-fetched, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so anyway, we're at the Twitter feed known as uh, Wendell Daily. And uh, I'm just going to rattle off. We're going to free associate some Wendell quotes and uh, see where it takes us. Okay. How's that sound? That sounds interesting. Let's see how it goes. So it's could work and it could work less, but we'll see how it goes. All right, so I'm the first one right at the top. Um, here's a window quote: "Don't own so much clutter that you will be relieved 
to see your house catch fire. <laughs> okay, so I actually opened that this morning when I woke up. Uh-huh. I sometimes check in on this feed. Uh-huh. And I laughed because last night I was like, you know, as long as I have the strong box with our passports <laughs> and the kids and, you know, my husband, then I might be relieved to see my house catch fire. And I, I just said that last night to a group of friends that we were hanging out with. Um, yeah, so I guess it's time <laughs> to uh-huh. to clean things out. You keep your husband in a strong box? No, no, no. That's what the... Oh, no. Just the, the, pass- just the passports. Husband, kids okay. on the side. Out of the yeah. house when it catches fire. Yeah. Well, there's this whole new trend of minimalism. Like, uh, you know, I guess there was a movie about it that I haven't seen, but like people who are just paring down to like, you know, just that one fork. Yeah. That you just wash every day and almost like you're camping all the time, mm-hmm. but you still live in a house of some kind. We kind of tried that before we had kids. Um, it ended up in us getting rid of a lot of books that we really wish we had back now. <laughs> mm. <laughs> All right, so let's uh, jump down. Um, this is going to jump our conversation around quite a bit, but um, th- that's Twitter for you, right? Right. Um, the real work of planet saving will be small, humble, and humbling, and insofar as it involves love, pleasing, and rewarding. The real work of planet saving will be small, humble, and humbling, and, and insofar as it involves love, pleasing, and rewarding. Whew. See, it's one of those quotes that has a parentheses in the middle yeah. of it. Um, so you have to, like, break it apart. Well, that's good stuff. I mean, <laughs> when, I mean, what it makes me think of is just, like, some of this work, this most important work you can't do unless you are really part of a community. Like, you can't make things happen... I mean, without forcing them, but the, to really cultivate the soil, to cultivate friendships, um, it is. It's, it's going to be very small scale. We talk about that, yeah. you know, think global but act local. That's kind of mm-hmm. where it, it takes me. And the local, the, mm-hmm. the super hyper local is mm-hmm. these this community building and this um, these smaller projects that are actually, you know, creating things that are more sustainable, more sustainable systems, but they, they each little piece is a, a very important part. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I feel like, I don't know about you, but I feel like um, so many things in the education and nonprofit realm have that community word attached to mm-hmm. it, and... It's almost like the idea is, well, let's just kind of insert community here. Let's just kind of uh, apply it and create it, <clears throat> which is a, not only is it really hard to define and measure how that's going. Mm-hmm. Oh, right. Yeah. <laughs> but it's, it's really hard to do um, intentionally unless you're just keeping an open heart with love and and you're doing things like, as you said, really, really small scale, you know, baby steps. And it takes years and years, usually, oh, yeah. before you kind of turn around and you go, oh, wait, we have a community. <laughs> How did that happen? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, yeah, it's funny what you say about measuring it because every, you know, all the work, like, within nonprofits has to be measured so you can, you know, get funding for it. And 
but the the real the real I guess assessment of how we're doing is not does not come from like how many kids actually tried a new vegetable this year. It comes from when like we show up and teachers and students are happy to see us and they're happy to get outside for their lesson. Um, and I've tried to write Just that being there is most of it be, being present for people. Yeah, and then you start to know each other and you start to know about the students and the teachers outside of their school experience they start sharing you know oh at home we do this or i mean even simple things like what what you did over the weekend but that take i mean it wasn't until you know full year programming with teachers that you get to that quality of of relationship and so this leads us into another quote because if the child's life outside of school is their home and where they play and how they get from A to B. Um, so if we considered all those places sacred places, um, then this quote from Wendell Berry, there are, no, there are no unsacred places. There are only sacred places and desecrated places. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. And I think about kids in Chicago who, they go on a field trip, like maybe they live on the south side or the west side, and they go to the loop for a field trip and some of the kids, even older kids are like, wow, it's the first time I've been downtown in Chicago, you know? So it's like if their, if their neighborhood or their house isn't considered a sacred place, it's if, it, if it's a desecrated place, then there's not a whole lot, there's not a whole lot of foundation there, you know? Yeah, well, and that, I don't know, there are so many, um, I guess, interpretations of mm-hmm. sacred and desecrated. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. That, that, that one's, um, that's, that's one of those ones, like, one of his things that I have to ponder for a while, kind of meditate it's on okay. it. We can ponder <laughs> it. I know, I'm kind of just, <laughs> this is rapid fire, so maybe some of these don't lend themselves to, to rapid fire as well. Well, and the scale wow. of sacred pit places, like what's sacred to me may not be sacred to you or to someone else. Right. Um, and then how how do you share that with other people when you do have a sacred place? Do you want to share right. it? Or sometimes you just want to not share it so it stays sacred. All right, I'm just flipping through here. All right. There is nothing more absurd than the millions who wish to live in luxury and idleness and yet be slender and good looking. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that makes sense. <laughs> Is there anything more absurd? No, that's pretty absurd. Um but it's fun. Yeah, I, that that actually um reminds me of a great conversation with some friends I had. They are um they are farmers and um they had this homestead in town and I was talking about I was in the classroom at the time. But I went to the gym and they're like, uh-huh. you, you garden. Why don't you just spend more time in your garden? Why would right. you go to a yeah. gym? <laughs> I'm like, OK, good point. I'm, you know, I'm taking that. It is a good point. Gyms are expensive. Too. Yeah. Um, yeah. So years ago when my gym membership ran out, I did quit going to the gym. Yay. <laughs> and uh-huh. I um, um, but no, but that idea like they are totally fit, healthy people um, and they're just. It's, it's just their daily 
you know, yeah. duties. Yeah, they have just the right amount of uh, melatonin in their skin, mm-hmm. and there are lots, lots of oxygen coming in their lungs yeah. constantly. And we'd get together, I'd be like, hey, you want to go for a hike? They're like, nah, we worked all day, let's just, <laughs> <laughs> let's have dinner. <laughs> right, yeah. And wouldn't that, I mean, isn't that the, the goal? I mean, I, there's some native community, some native tribe, I forget where it is, very remote area where the mo- the sort of lifestyle is as long as you get hungry during the day and you laugh and you cry every day and you get really tired at the end of the day that's a good life that's how you know, you know? you're you're on the right track right you're really alive like oh wow i'm really tired today i really worked hard okay let's that's right. good that is good when I rise, let me rise up like a joyful. <clears throat> let me try that again. This one gets this one gets shared quite a bit, actually. Now that I see it, I've seen it uh, retweeted quite a bit. When I rise, let me rise up joyful like a bird. When I fall, let me fall without regret like a leaf. That's awesome. Um, I do. I like. I like his focus on the times of joy because he's a very practical man and, you know, talks a lot about the strife and the problems of the world, but always um, leaves a space, I guess that sacred space, for joy. Like, we must, we must allow ourselves to experience joy in this world. I mean... We can so it's almost a matter of perspective to find that joy, maybe. Certainly can be. Um, I mean, I I know I'm coming from a place of privilege, so I I had you know my growing up, my mom was a single mom with four kids, but my dad was still in the picture. So emotionally, even though we didn't have a lot of money, emotionally, like my family was pretty well um, cared for. And upper middle class kind of deal. Uh, lower middle class, but we. <laughs> but what is middle class these days anyway? <laughs> uh, well, we we were on free and reduced lunch, so <laughs> so mm-hmm. we were in that we fell in that category, but we were still doing great. Um, mm-hmm. And I had a beautiful childhood. I had lots of friends, and um, so I feel like that allows me to be able to see the joy in the world. I had those experiences yes. young. I think yes. when people don't get those experiences early on they're always i don't know seeking but may not be able to shift that perspective if if it's not ingrained in your nature so um Mm -hmm. and if wendell berry were here in this conversation he would say it is perhaps impossible for a person living unhappily with a flush toilet to imagine a person living happily without (laughs) oh yeah I remember reading this this book about uh, tribes in the Amazon and like they're just joyful people with very little and you know they get injured and they just they're able to find the joy in an injury because it's just the because it's just hilarious that like you know dumb things happen and we have no control over them and it's just like let's find the joy in every everything that we do you know Yeah that is a funny perspective um but it, that reminds me of my daughter. Um, she'll bump into something, and she before she like acknowledges the pain of getting hurt, she always laughs. Like she thinks it's funny to be like basically like woken up from whatever daze you're in, 
Oh, that's great. <laughs> uh, How old is she? She's 11. Oh, that's great. Yeah, I, I noticed that about her. I'm like, that looked really painful, but she's laughing, and then she'll be like, yeah, it's painful. <laughs> <laughs> well, she's wise beyond her years. Yeah, she sure is. To damage the earth is to damage your children, speaking of children. Yeah. Uh, that one to me seems like a no-brainer um right but then also this is this is a space that i've been in a lot lately in my mind is like our system here in the united states and most of the western world like forces us to be contributors to this damage on a daily basis the way you know our cities are set up that we have to burn fossil fuels to get around i mean we don't, but we have to be very intentional and really take on a different lifestyle and pathway. It's not mm -hmm. the, the natural like system that we're growing up, not, or I'd say the unnatural system we're growing up in does not give us that as, as the easy option or the, I don't know, I guess we, we've based what we do so much on convenience that um, even the people with with good intentions are constantly just contributing to this damage. And I, I, I feel pain daily when I'm realizing all the things I'm doing as much as I try not to. Precarious times, precarious times. I mean, people talk about the, you know, when inevitably the carbon fueled economy just sort of collapses under its own weight, you know, that at some point it just, this unsustainable, uh, system just can't uh, go on and I feel like when it does then people who are kind of who have been working in a more sustainable mode will be able to adapt you know they'll have the at least the mindset to think uh, more sustainably about how we do everything you know um, uh, and but that's going to be a rocky transition for sure yeah you I mean yeah, when I play it out in my mind, the transition time is just what would be, you know, extremely painful and, you know, deadly um, for, for, I mean, it, it would be war, I would think, of some sort. Right, resources mm -hmm. and, yeah. Ooh, okay, let's not okay. talk about that anymore. Uh, Bring it go, back up. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to edit this back in to our previous little... Uh, our little conversation about your daughter, because Wendell Berry says, laugh. Laughter is immeasurable. Be joyful, though you have considered all the facts. That's your daughter right there. She's like, bang, I just jumped, bump. She's like, I just banged my knee on the coffee table, but it's hilarious. Yes. No, I like that. I like that a lot. That's really inspiring, too, because that sometimes I feel like People always say, Lauren, you're a really positive person. Like, I feel like there can be a perspective of people who don't know me very well that I am not paying attention to what's going on in the world. But I feel like in consideration of all the facts that I still want to focus on the beauty in the world. And I want, and it's hard. I mean, I have several friends who suffer from depression. I have family members with anxiety. And you can't sell people on your perspective, as we had talked about before. Um, but 
I don't know, like one of my goals is just to maybe help people connect even if momentarily with something positive in in the day or what's going on in the present. Well, that's a noble pursuit. And I mean, I lately, I don't know anybody, myself included, who doesn't have somebody in their immediate close family circle or friend circle who isn't just like crippled by anxiety, like totally just de- demolished by anxiety and depression or and all the myriad diseases that come out of it. And um, so, yeah, like you said, if, if at the very least we can just be a positive force for those people in our lives, like that's a lifelong <laughs> pursuit. You can yeah. do that your, every day for the rest of your life. And that can be your thing, you know? Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's challenging um, to maintain, you know, the positive perspective all the time. But then that's where this nature thing comes in. Then you walk outside and you're like, oh, it's, you know, twilight and the silhouettes of these trees are amazing. Or, you know, there's, listen to the bird sounds in the morning. Oh, there's still a lot of birds around. <laughs> this is a good thing. For us, thing. it's like cicadas right now. Oh, yeah. Cicadas are uh-huh. out in Chicago and my son is two. And so he's just like hearing this sound for the first time. Yeah. And it, that's a cool thing about having kids too, is that you get to hear it again for the first time. Mm-hmm. And when you really listen to a cicada that's right outside the window, it's like mesmerizing. Yeah, you know? like electric, and like, but no. Electric. <laughs> yeah, they're totally. And soothing. Like, I feel like when I hear uh, one of my favorite instruments is the harmonium, which is this Indian uh, keyboard that's like a pump organ keyboard. And if you heard it, you'd know exactly what I'm talking about. But it has this, like, droney, this droney kind of sound. And every time I hear it, it just... I feel like my body just kind of melts. Everything just sort of relaxes. And cicadas have that effect, too. It's really like it's a physical thing. Yeah, they have that rhythm for sure, kind of a meditative, just, yeah, hum. Amazing. So along those lines, all right, every day ain't going to be the best day of your life. Don't worry about that. That's what Wendell says little country wisdom for you. All right. Sounds good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm going to reply to the tw- to the Twitter feed. All right. Sounds good. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, I mean, it, it's absolutely true. But then also, this is something I've had to remind myself um, a lot. Uh, more in um, when I was teaching in the classroom, the days were just so intense dealing with everybody's emotions like you want to connect with all your students and there are your colleagues and the administrators and you're really trying to if if a person is really trying to be present you're taking in everybody's emotions and it can be exhausting and then sometimes you just mess up like you just do something wrong you say the wrong thing or you don't get some, you know, something to someone when they need it. And it feels like it's, you know, when three of these things happen in a row, you're like, this is just going to be a bad day. Uh, but stopping like right there. OK, this does not have to be a bad day. I can whatever needs to be done to fix that. Let's go ahead and do that. 
and then take a few breaths and start now. Like we define time by these weeks and these days. So it's going to be, you know, you have two bad days in a row. Oh no, it's going to be a bad week. But truthfully, this time is just this illusion. So we can stop at any moment, whatever pattern that we're creating that we don't like, and we can go ahead and take a step in, you know, a better direction. Man, you, it's like you're inside my head because um, my wife and I are doing this um, eight-week course called Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction, in MBSR, and uh, it's like a John Kabat-Zinn program, and uh, one of the tools was basically exactly what you just said, and we were just practicing it last night where you, um, it's called STOP is the acronym, S is for stop, T is for take a breath, O is for observe what's going on in your body, right? Like you said, uh, you're in a classroom and everything's failing and the kids are revolting (laughs) and and, uh, just observe what's going on. Like, how do you feel in your body? Because I think usually we just, those things happen and we don't even notice what's happening to us, you know? Um, We're always focusing on the outside, like, oh, that person's to blame or this situation's to blame and, you know, um, and then P being proceed, you know, proceed into something new, like you said. That's and it's challenging to do that, yeah. but I don't know, I guess the more practice, like the more often you can actually make it happen, <laughs> the more natural it becomes. And I've realized with other people, like sharing spaces with other people and, you know, pretty much my entire life, I have been, I've never really lived on my own. I grew up in a big family. I have a big family. I've taught. So I've always been surrounded by people, but like coming to this realization that their emotions are this energy that fills the room, but not necessarily having to take that energy in and and, and combine it with mine, um, especially with the people that you love the most. It's really the hardest. Like you naturally feel like you're taking on whatever their stress or disappointment is. Um, yeah. But trying to keep in mind that I can be more supportive of other people if I can not take on the yeah. stress or negativity. Oh man! So one of my former colleagues was our—he—he he was a diversity director. So he was like the guy who was always running workshops about diversity and, you know, windows and mirrors and you know all the kind of heavy um, racial issues and uh, sexual orientation issues. So people would always come to him with like their story of the day, like, "Oh man, this happened to me," or "I just read this article that is," you know, "I just wanted to." bounce it off of you and so he was always the one like absorbing other people's heavy trips right and the way he put it to me was like the way he survived that I guess was you know he doesn't have to he can visit that world while he's speaking to somebody like really listen and really empathize and and really show that he's He's, he's caring, but he doesn't have to live in that world. He can just visit it and then go, oh, that was an interesting visit. <laughs> now I'm going to move on with the rest of my day, you know? Yeah, that's a good way <laughs> to put it. Oh, all right. Okay, we're coming up on the end here. Um, since you're running a, a nonprofit 
this might ring a bell. To make a living isn't to make a killing. To make a living is to make enough. Yeah. I like yeah. that one. I like talking about enough. Yeah. Because that was... Because maybe if you, don't, if you don't have a flush toilet, maybe you have enough. Right, and maybe the flush toilet just becomes a pain in the butt because the flapper leaks, and then you got to turn off the water. I'm, I'm not. I mean, <laughs> more money, more problems, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> this flush toilet is. Uh, what is it doing to me? It's turning me into a monster. I keep going to Home Depot. Exactly. <laughs> um, I'm actually living that experience in my household right now. <laughs> oh, but, God, um, it's the worst. But, no, um, thinking about, you know, the, like, people equate success with financial success here, you know, in the United States. Um, but there does become a point where you, you just, all you can do with your money is buy more stuff or, or the numbers just sit there in an account and they're not doing anything. Or it seems like some people follow that kind of pattern. But then you have your two houses and your boat and your all these things that need to take care of, be taken care of, they all have, you know, issues of their own. And do you get to enjoy your time? Like, I don't know. I, so. Right. And that's being mindful, too. Do you even notice that you're not enjoying your time? Or are you just thinking about the next uh, vacation all the time, you know? Yeah. Like this, this kind of, like, mystery time down the road where, okay, I'm working hard so I can enjoy my life. Uh, in six months, you know. Yeah, in, in this place that will be better, whatever better is. Yeah. All right, so this might be the last one, um, but it doesn't have to be. But I was thinking about your story about um, taking your family to the Redwoods, I believe, mm -hmm. which always stuck with me, that story. Um, so Wendell says, invest in the millennium plant sequoias say that your main crop is the forest that you did not plant that you will not live to harvest say that your main crop is the forest that you did not plant that you will not live to harvest read that one more time though yeah so he's just saying so he says invest in the millennium right it's like that um Iroquois proverb, like, right, the seventh, seventh generation, right? So invest in the millennium, plant sequoias, right? Because sequoias must take, what, hundreds of years to get mature? <clears throat> Say that your main crop is the forest that you did not plant, that you will not live to harvest. Hmm. It's an interesting idea. Well, I guess... It makes me think just about this responsibility to be, I mean, in addition to the forest, but to be caretakers of what's been here for all these years that we do not need to use up. How do we, how do we become those stewards? Right. And so you took your so anyway you took your family to the to the forest and your your at first your son was like not in like you yeah I, I know as a parent like you have expectations right you're like oh man this is gonna I'm gonna get like 
the parent like blue ribbon <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. prize, my kids are going to be like, Mom, or in my case, Dad, you're brilliant. I Thank you no so idea. much. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for this. Really, this means a lot to me to get to experience this forest. I feel nourished by it. <laughs> and is that that's what happened? Yeah, no, that's totally what happened. No. Yeah, no, three-fourths of the kids were like, this is pretty cool. Um, and then my teenager was just, uh, did not get, well, it turns out he did not get a good night's sleep. But my initial interpretation was that he he, he hated the Redwoodsman. Um, right, right, yeah. Yeah, so we're walking... He's crabby. We're walking through the the um, Avenue of the Giants. Like we're off the road, and we're walking through the trails off the Avenue of the Giants in the Humboldt um, State Park area. And they're the most amazing trees, and the lighting, the way it's filtering through. I mean, it was just absolutely splendid. Um, and he's crabby. And but that was one of those points I did have to realize, like. I can get all wrapped up in his crabbiness or I can, you know, still be here and, like, this is something I wanted to do my entire life. I can still be here and be a part of it. Um, but then after we left, I did, like, I mean, driving hours back, you know, from California to Texas gave me a lot of time to ponder where I went wrong as a parent. Um, <laughs> um, what else is there to think about, right? That's right. <laughs> Um, yeah, and I was so, like, it did, it, it shattered me for a while, and then later he was going hiking with some friends, which was the first time he had really initiated outdoor adventures on his own with his peers, um, and so I got really excited, and so we came back to this conversation about how, how bad the redwoods were, and he's like, it wasn't that... <laughs> It was bad. It's just I didn't sleep well, and the ground was rocky, and I had, you know, he was sharing a tent with his siblings. He's like, I didn't have it. He's quite a tall kid. He's like almost 6'2". He's like, I didn't have room to stretch out, and I was like, okay, okay, I kind of see it. And then we talked more about things like, he's like, it's not that I don't like the outdoors. It's like, I don't like sleeping on hard, bumpy ground. I was like, okay, yeah. I can relate to that. He's more, he's more of a glamper than a yeah, camper. Yeah, right. exactly. Um, yeah. So then, yeah, so we talked about, you know, the different things he does like, and canyons are really um, sacred places for him, that he really finds um, the solitude and the just the, the structure of canyons to be really amazing and um, yeah, I'm so glad we had, well, we've had many follow-up conversations since then, but, um, yeah, because I was really, really sad for, I mean, unfortunately it took us months before we had the follow-up conversation, so right, I was kind of right, living right, right. with that for a while. Yeah, yeah, I remember when you told me that, it was like a, it's like a heavy thing, and, I mean, it's great because you're, not only in your family life, but in your professional life, you're you're, you're just trying to expose children to the possibilities, but it's really up to them, you know, to find the, to find the entry point for themselves and to, to feel like they are responsible for their environment on some level. Um, it's like when I'm trying to get my son to eat, one of the things we heard to be helpful with that is like, it's your responsibility to present 
the food to them, it's their responsibility to eat it, <laughs> right? We can't make them love it. You yeah, know? and that, yeah. All we can do is present it. That's a whole other challenge when we talk about food and food options. and um, But that, I guess, is also another important piece of the work we do is that we are able to show them food in a different like we're not in the supermarket we're in gardens um we get to show it in a whole new light um the sunlight instead of those fluorescent lights uh makes a difference (laughs) and close to its source yeah oh i didn't realize that's where how tomatoes are actually grown yeah and kids who grow their own food they i mean they get excited that this was the plant that they took part in growing and so they are more willing to try Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, you're doing it, Lauren, and it's awesome to hear about, and I love following your, your journey, and, um, and uh, you've become a resource for me, actually, so I want to say thank you for just uh, for helping me to keep, keep doing this work, too. Thank you, and thank you for taking the time to, to talk with me. Okay, folks, thanks for listening. If you like this, be sure to share it with like-minded folks. Find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. You can contact me, Twitter, at FarmonDharma, or send me an email, dharmaonthefarm at gmail.com, or check out my essays on the website, dharmaonthefarm.com. Tune in next time. I'll be interviewing a couple of really cool artists from Chicago doing some farm art. Until then, follow the sun find well-being, and farm on.